Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med den spanske filosof, aktivist og forfatter Marina Garthes. Garthes har et projekt, som er at lære aktivismen at tænke. At få filosofien ud i gaderne, få gjort det, hun kalder for den radikale oplysning, tilgængelig for alle dem, der mobiliserer og organiserer sig for at skabe en mere retfærdig, bedre og mere bæredygtig verden. Hun kommer selv fra aktivismen og var i 90'erne og i starten af 0'erne engageret i nogle af de store globale protester mod verdenshandelsorganisationen WTO, mod den globale nyliberalisme, men også fra de lokale bevægelser i Spanien, som kæmpede for et andet Barcelona end det, som var ved at blive bygget af stærke kommercielle interesser. Hun var aktiv i M15-bevægelsen, som var et opgør med austerity i Spanien, så hun kender til den lokale, nationale og internationale aktivisme. Og hun oplevede, at de teorier, der stod til rådighed for aktivister, de simpelthen var irrelevante og inadekvate. Som hun siger, de klassiske politiske tanker er lavet i nogle andre systemer end dem, vi har, og de er i meget høj grad lavet til politiske partier. Garthes er også professor i filosofi ved det åbne universitet i Katalonien, og hun begyndte at undervise i den radikale oplysning, som den britiske idehistoriker Jonathan Israel har skrevet adskillige meget tykke bøger om. Gennem sin studie af Israel blev hun mindet om, at oplysningen, den radikale oplysning, som for den Diderot og Condorcet og Spinoza stod for, ikke bare var et projekt eller en forestilling om en rationel verden, det var en tilgang til verden. Det var en forståelse af klassekamp, stridigheder og en insisteren på, at hvis man lærte at tænke selv, var det også vejen til frigørelse. Hallo, Marina. Hallo, hallo, nice to meet you. Det skrev hun en lille bog om i 2017, en bog som blev et manifest. And nice to meet you. This is such a wonderful book you've written. It's so you inspiring, you know. And no, Thank but it's really philosophy on fire. Bogen hedder For en ny radikal oplysningstid. Den er blevet oversat til tysk, fransk og engelsk og er blevet en lidt overraskende bestseller i hvert fald her i Europa. Og den er en enorm inspiration, både til dem, der vil gøre filosofien relevant, og dem, der vil lære aktivismen at tænke. Det er det, som vores samtaler handler om her. God fornøjelse. There's a rare belief in the political and social potential of philosophy in your book. And I experience with a lot of young people that we have coming here at the newspaper and where I teach that they want different eco-sciences, different eco-humanities. They feel that The old tradition has become superfluous and honestly part of the problem. But you seem to have such an enthusiasm for philosophy. How did you originally come to encounter philosophy? I came through philosophy at high school and it would seem quite obvious because it's the moment you can get in contact to it. But it it's less and less obvious because I think all, all around Europe, It's getting more and more difficult for young people to get in touch with philosophy, even at high school, because there's orientation towards technologies and other kind of uh, education. So I could still have, and I hope uh, young people still have the opportunity to have a quite consistent approach to philosophy when I was 16, 17 years old. So it's that age where this kind of unpressed and curiosity, but also this feeling of uh, injustice and 
the need to to understand at, and at the same time to to find tools for intervention so for me philosophy was not something through which uh, finding how to escape the world but on the contrary how to get in, into another relationship with what was going on at that time i'm talking about 1991, good companies and good allies through the books and also on my life as a student, as a professor, as an activist, etc. I should say that my son, he has his name after Kant. I have a son who's named Emmanuel. So we're great Kantians in, in, okay. <laughs> in, in, in my family. And it took me very long time. Of course, I know the, the essay about emancipation and, and enlightenment, mm -hmm. but Later on, I became more interested in the political potential of the aesthetics. But who who were the first philosophers that that you that you became acquainted with? I had quite a conventional and classical training at, at the university, uh, classical philosophers and etc. But when I started to feel really a, this kind of complicity with authors was through French contemporary philosophers at that time, like Foucault, uh, Deleuze, uh, this post-Nietzschean, uh, post-structuralist kind of philosophers. I think they were my first um, direct um, friends, to, 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 to name it in a, in a certain way. And, and from there, I, I, I could start to, to read again, even classical sources in another way, in my PhD thesis, for example, that was about the concept of the possible. I read, I, I did a reading of Aristoteles, of uh, Heidegger, of Leibniz, but from this kind of uh, critical, suspicious way of reading um, classical uh, sources. I was shaped by that tradition as, as well. And there was a lot of philosophers that I read through the monographies of Deleuze, like he exactly. wrote about Spinoza, like he wrote about, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he wrote about Leibniz, and he Leibniz. wrote about, <laughs> exactly. yes, uh, Le Pli, uh, exactly. was, was the book. What, what I really found interesting in your book, that it seems that you locate a battle on the, on the dimension of ideas, that, that mm -hmm. there is a, a, a cultural political battle going on at the level of ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think here, Many of us, we have the sensation, maybe wrongly, that you know we have all the good ideas. You know, we have all the we we have all the the, the good ideas. What we've been very focused on is to see how do you make ideas that social movements will carry. You know, mm -hmm. how do you make, for instance, Joe Stieglitz wrote this essay about the one percent that was carried over by a movement. How mm -hmm. do Thomas Thomas Piketty's ideas? become transferred into politics. So for us, very often, it's not so much about the ideas in itself, but the connection between ideas and the streets. How do you see this connection? I think your, your question is, is pointing to the most difficult aspect of, of thought. And 
because we have this very traditional dualistic way of approaching the opposition between theory and practice or modelization and application of ideas. And in fact, ideas um, are not made out of the context, are not made in an ivory tower, are not made, even if academia tends, tends to be that more and more, again, um, ideas is what uh, makes us possible to relate to what is going on in a local scale or a very wide scale in a way that we can think about it. Uh, ideas are for these, are not to travel around the universe um, out of time and space. So on the one hand, the question is, how do we get to the wrong idea that ideas are out of the place? Hmm. That's, that's a fiction uh, and a very strange fiction, in fact. We need ideas to think when common problematics, even social, existential, um, biological, I don't know what, in, in, in all fields of, of experience become problematic. And when aspects of life uh, in all its dimensions become problematic is when we need ideas. So for me, philosophy is this tension and, and the need to find these connections for each scale and, and each problematic of our time and, and spaces. In the specific uh, field of social problems, and then is when social movements came into, into problem, with not classical politics tend to make its theory, its program, and then its movements. No, it's like this, this three exactly. moment uh, or no, the organization of, of political action, of political thinking. But it's very strange because it means that movements don't think movements just act and apply uh, others uh, theories and in my experience uh, i have had the chance in the 90s and the late 90s and then the, the beginning of the the 2000s to be part of movements that were like a little bit orphans of theory that we were not mm -hmm. just under the classical communism or classical anarchism or classical whatsoever because all these, uh, as a sources of thought and of conflict, of uh, experience, yes, but as a theories to be applied only through a, I don't know, a classical party, that was not for us anymore the point. So we had to invent and find other kind of uh, sources, perhaps in a very ec eclectical way or in a very made up uh, way of thinking, but we had the need to start thinking again through what we were uh, doing uh, through action. So it's part of my school also, no? university and academia and books and the, the classical canon is one, but this kind of very basic political action that needs to make up again uh, ways of um, talking, uh, concepts and ways of thinking in this crisis of the emancipatory uh, classical uh, ideologies, I think that made me very close and, 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 no, and, very, and very directly experience this possibility to make philosophy cross uh, social action and on the contrary. We're in a very interesting moment now. In It's different from all the countries in the West, but where this cleavage between the universities and the rest of society has become politicized a lot. When I was, I grew up in the 70s, you know, mm -hmm. and we lived in a neighborhood where pe many people worked in the universities. 
And they could, without any shame, say, well, they were on the party of the workers, definitely. You know, they were at the university, but they were workers' clothes. Some of it seemed ridiculous, but I also liked the aspiration of it. And today, when you see um, how universities are perceived and, and politicized, it's very much like you are part of the upper classes. You are part of the privileged. And when, when we have young students coming here at the newspaper that come from university, I always tell them that you have the tool that is most decisive for success in this country. Whatever other features you have on your personality, you come with a package that will allow you meritocratic esteem. So you're on the privileged side. On the other hand, you know, a lot of what you do in universities is about helping the rest of society, thinking with and for the rest of society. How do you deal with this political cleavage between the universities and the rest of societies? Your your diagnosis is is exact, <laughs> uh, and um, I think that the seventies and the nineties in another very different way because the kind of politicization of the nineties before the uh, outer modernization movements and all this kind was very different from the seventies. But but again, was a moment where this lack of openness of universities, or at least from students and some kind of professors to what was going on, was opened again. And now, I agree completely with you. There's a new uh, no, accumulation, uh, primitive accumulation of knowledge and richness uh, for certain um, social classes through knowledge, also through university, through learning, through uh, the access to certain kind of relationships, because perhaps it's very paradoxical. On the one hand, we have like a kind, it's not absolutely like this, but a kind of free access to knowledge or uh, to information mm. to anyone through a mobile phone <clears throat> or some or whatsoever or, uh, can have access to almost every field of knowledge. Or, but uh, what does it mean to have it alone? And here, there's one of the things that for me is interesting to think in contrast to enlightenment moments. We have where free access to knowledge was not possible. Knowledge was in a, a monopole from certain institutions and, and estimates from society. Now we have like free access, but this means nothing because you can <laughs> do anything with this. And at the same time, uh, a new enclosure of the really meaningful places where this knowledge can have a value, economical value, social value, uh, political value, and a value for an access not, not to knowledge, but to the privilege of being part of certain professional classes and like clubs, no? It's, it's more yeah. a kind of, of a lobbyistic way of understanding what a university is. So I, I, I leave it not this, this turning uh, point of university system or academic global system, I leave it really very painfully because it's not what I was uh, from where I came as an experience when I studied. That's not the point uh, from which I became a university professor. So I leave it like, a, not like uh, an internal enemy of my own system because of course uh, just uh, not being part of of this machine of reproduction of social privileges is not um, at all uh, 
my point is very uh, competitive at this moment, the academic um, uh, life, for, especially for young people. And what I try is to create, like, not islands, because islands don't subsist in that kind of very violent system, but uh, at least spaces for honesty and, and mutual support within academia. That, that means not, not um, promoting uh, competitions through my colleagues, through my PhD students, through, through, but not to be only you know, kind and, and good person, but really to, to create counter power in, in the system itself. But there's a disproportion of, of expectatives in this moment, no? and it's very difficult to support people and, and, and try and they don't um, get into the trap, for example, of just writing to get impact publications. Uh, and, and for me, teaching philosophy is teaching to read and write, basically, because that's why, how we can think better. But how can you learn uh, to read and write when you are called to write uh, only uh, impact papers for academical um, reviews? That's important. In that, with that uh, goal, you're you're never going to write good pieces of thought. So it's like really being a uh, no in a in an internal fight for no opening free spaces. Uh, within the occupied lands of knowledge and ideas. But I felt that your book was a kind of a letter from the academia to the rest of the world, that it's so, mm -hmm. it's very accessible. You know, you, you have to be on the level of your anger and, and your intensity, but it's, I feel you take something out of academia and put it at the disposal of a broader public. It's not a difficult book to read, you know? And no. even, for, even for people who find that there's a long way through Le Pli by Deleuze. This is a book that you can actually read in a, in, in a couple of hours. What was the original project with that book? Yeah, for me, what, what you're saying about my writing, and it's the case of this, this book and all, all the rest of my books, for me, it's very important to break the walls in a moment where the walls are going higher again, this kind of uh, exclusiveness of academia, etc to break the walls, but not in a paternalistic way. Because hmm. there are people also who are making only you know, this, this kind of very paternalistic approach to, you know, I write this for my scientific community and I write that for the people who don't know. For me, that would be an authoritarian way of, of sharing uh, thought and knowledge. I think that the, the ideas we need for our times are difficult because everything is very complex, but it doesn't mean that the ways we get to them need to be complicated. That, mm. that's, for me, that's a, a, a strategy of power. If I write things that only some privileged people can read, I'm in a way uh, reaffirming my power on, on, on other people. So for me, this work with, um, with writing that, makes uh, the most difficult ideas simple, and that's very difficult to do, is one of my engagements. It's one of my ways of action, you know, philosophical action, uh, uh, pedagogical action, political action through the writing in itself. 
So, and sometimes my colleagues don't understand. It's, it's so nice, you write so nice, you write, you write so, so clear. It's like if I was making a favor to uh, the people. And it's yeah. the contrary. It's, it's exactly <laughs> the contrary. So you were asking what was part of the project. Some parts of the seeds, to say in a way, of this book, The New Enlightenment, The New Radical Enlightenment, were different lectures, uh, public lectures in Barcelona. I think that, that there are like three moments of the essay that were part of, of lectures. So that's why you can feel also this very open way of addressing uh, ideas. It's not written like the, the lecture. Eh? It's completely rewritten or written again. But the purpose of having to be really very clear upon certain aspects of uh, my argument is part of this having been part of uh, public lectures. Then when the um, collection of the Spanish uh, publisher Cuadernos uh, Anagrama is a very, uh, in, for us, is a very mythical collection of books, uh, small books, because it was the reference for us thought books of the 70s, 70s and, and 80s. This anagrama publisher made this collection, the cuadernos, these small size books, Foucault essays, uh, um, all the all the all the critical thinking that we could get through um, uh, translated in that moment came through this collection. In the nineteen 1890s, a moment of depolitization, uh, this collection stopped, and. The ones that were studying at that moment searched the old uh, books of this collection like mm, treasures. So it was very uh, precious to me that when this publisher uh, in the 2017-18, when my book came out, asked me to write the first book for the new life of this collection, was really an honor because for me it was mythical. So that's these two moments, the lecture, public lectures and this mythical collection of critical thought. I was very um, struck by the fact that you take enlightenment and use it as a positive word because, yeah. I, you know, when I was growing up, I always hated Adorno. I, you know, I hated this aristocratic position of negativity where you can be against everything at the same time, fascism, petit bourgeois, enlightenment, and it's all part of what's bad. And then what is good is something called the non-identical. Uh, and, and there's this passage that you quote in your book from the dialectics of, uh, of enlightenment. That's just, it all ends in, in, in disaster. So I was delighted to see you use enlightenment in such a positive term. But of course, I also have many young colleagues and thinkers around who are like, well, enlightenment was where it all began to fall apart. That's when we thought that we could conquer the universe and knowledge is power and everything. Why did you choose to make enlightenment such a positive mm -hmm. term? Yeah, I've received many, of course, many critics from colleagues from feminism or post-colonial movements that get completely... <laughs> Or in horror of uh, finding in one of my books uh, a good reference to the Enlightenment. Of course, there, there is this radical in the middle of, of it, and then I get more uh, not not so punished by by my by my colleagues. But if you read the book, of course, you find 
the reasons for, for it and, uh, and, and it has been very well received by uh, even people very, very critical to modernity and colonial patriarchal, et cetera, et cetera, um, moment of, of civilization. And I came to this kind of need to read uh, again, enlightenment as a movement and as an attitude, not, not so much as a project. On the one hand, uh, through my own teaching at university, because I had to, to teach modern philosophy for certain years at the University of Zaragoza, is wh where I taught be before the Open University, where I'm now. And through these years of really um, patient teaching of modern philosophy, I started to understand and discover uh, other sources of this enlightenment that are not the more usual ones. We always go to Kant or to... Um, but then I started to read more the, 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 you know, the, the, the previous ones, the French uh, enlightened philosophy, Diderot, for example, for me was a great discovery. I'm now a Diderotian uh, <laughs> in, all, in all ways of, of life. But also this clue idea that for me is the idea that there was no one project of enlightenment, but that the enlightenment was a battlefield, was, was completely a moment of crisis, of, uh, of battle, of ideas, of sensibilities, uh, of class struggle also. And, and that, that was, but this before the, the French Revolution, not during the, the, the first part or middle of the 18th century. And it was not fixed how this, this battlefield would end um, and what would be the winners of this battle and what would we receive afterwards as the project of, of uh, enlightenment. So uh, if we go to the sources, there's, this doesn't exist and as, a, as such. I think it's something that the historization of the 19th century that starts to build through Hegel and company this idea of one line of uh, history, one line of uh, subjectivity, one line of the development of, of certain ideas of freedom, of uh, equality, etc., and begins to be modeled. But before Kant, it, this idea doesn't exist. So what I found there is a more uh, Foucauldian approach to enlightenment. Foucault says um, being for or against enlightenment is nonsense because there is no one team to be for or against. Uh, enlightenment is an attitude. And this idea of attitude gave me the clue to approach these very different expressions of one attitude that I resumed uh, through this idea of being critical to dogmatisms and its correspondence uh, of oppressions of our time. And we can be uh, critical to scientist dogmatism, for example, and its op operations. It's not science against religion. It's not reason against uh, belief. It's being critical against being dogmatic, whatsoever dogmatism we, um, we defend. In the title of your book, there's the word radical, which is, of course, is very appealing, whereas enlightenment is not appealing to all social movement. Radical is always appealing. But it always refers back to the studies by Jonathan Israel, who distinguishes between 
the radical enlightenment and the moderate enlightenment. I loved reading these. They're very, very long histories, but you read them almost like novels. And he's, that's an activist reading of history as well from, from his part. But he's very much the heroes are Delvecchio, Stolpach. The, the big hero is, is Spinoza, Diderot. And then on the other hand, you have the moderate enlighteners, Voltaire, for, for instance, who favor stability over emancipation, aristocracy over, over democracy. And if we take this scheme up to today and see the radical enlightenment position, who's the moderate enlightenment position? Where's the other position? Mm -hmm. If, if um, I think you almost invites the question with the title of your book. <laughs> yeah, I got to, to Jonathan Israel's um, reading of enlightenment in that period of, of teaching modern uh, philosophy. It was an approach that I never got uh, not during my student times or afterwards. So for me, it was, was like a, a discovery in the sense that gave me the context and the tools to, um, to have another way of, uh, of approaching it. This Spinozian root of enlightenment is, is great to understand because, of course, it was silence in itself. It was, no one could say, I am reading Spinoza, for example, Diderot. No, because you got uh, you're punished if, uh, if you read explicitly uh, Spinoza. Only the Jacques uh, Le Fataliste no, that makes a servant repeat Spinoza's uh, theories is the way to relate to it. So for me, uh, understanding that all this was operating uh, in what we've received through other uh, readings was very important. And that's the the, the hint no, why I, I left this radical on the title or on the naming of the radical enlightenment, also because of this idea of radical and roots. So that is not so much interesting where, which were the goals or the horizons of enlightenment, but which were its roots from where it started and not where it went because goals and horizons can change. But perhaps if we go to the roots of what has been unsolved, we can find the way for us to redefine our problems, our horizons and our goals. Of course, we will not be the ones of a society in two or three centuries ago, and more, a lot of them can be revised or even thrown away. So in these two senses, for me, it was very interesting to recall this radicality of enlightenment, the one that came through Jonathan Israel books and Philip Blom and all these kind of historians of modern uh, ideas. And uh, on the other side, this in more intempestive um, sense of radicality. That's the idea. And nowadays, if you were asking me, it's difficult to find this kind of um, tension. Perhaps we still have this kind of social democratic universe of political ideas, cultural approaches to our times that could be the equivalent of uh, moderate enlightenment, I would say, mm. never um, being not radical and at the same time being not uh, rupturist, only managing, uh, yeah. managing the, the, the problem, managing the margins of injustice, the margins of progress, the margins of uh, redistribution of wealth, uh, always under the menace of um, everything could be worse. <laughs> so <laughs> nowadays with real menaces of everything could be worse in very different 
inequality, populism, uh, extreme far-right movement. So for me, that could be the equivalent of moderate enlightenment. It's, it is much more difficult to find what would be the equivalent of radical enlightenment because it's very difficult nowadays to sustain this kind of radicality, open radicality, because radicals have in all, uh, no, all, the, all the range of positions, but this kind of uh, really going radically to what we don't know how to solve, but we can stand there and, and sustain uh, the problematic aspects of our conviviality, of our different dimensions of life open to its possible solutions no? and not just closing them in a defensive way, in a, no? in a very pragmatic and, and solutionist. I also talk about this solutionist way of legitimating uh, technology, ideology, uh, even education. This, for me, it was one of the open questions of the book. How do we get to this uh, critical, radical attitude, and how can we give it words to it uh, nowadays? I think that's actually a very interesting answer, and I think I agree with you, even if, especially if we extend it and say that there's a certain technocratic re rationality that's very widespread, and mm -hmm. that's kind of saying, we will defend you against Trump, we will defend you against the radical right. We will defend you against extremism, but we will also defend you against the yellow vests and we will defend you yeah, against exactly. the direct democracy. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that often puts the radical critical position in a very difficult spot because those who are most opposed to this technocratic dominant, to a certain extent, neoliberal rationality, that's very often people on the right and people on the right, who have, they have the anger, they have the anti-establishment attitude. And, and in your book, you say that, that the credo, we don't believe you. That mm -hmm. is, it's kind of, this is the way radical thinking starts today. And, mm -hmm. and this, I, I agree with you, but how do you distinguish this, we yeah. don't believe you, of a radical progressive position from people on the right who say, we don't believe you when you say we should save immigrants. We don't believe you, your vaccination programs. We don't believe you when you say climate change is, is, is real. How do you distinguish these two? Yeah, it's a very, very important <laughs> question. And in five years time, uh, I think it's more and more um, uh, difficult to, to answer this question because this kind of uh, denialist and very corrosive and very destructive positions of um, really making this kind of, um, we can doubt of and, and denial anything we want because we want, and even the, the, the earth is flat because I want to uh, believe it like this, even if I can see pictures of the earth and it's not flat, but it's flat. No, this this way of of uh, the very disruptive way of uh, thinking. I don't know if it is thinking of of making strong uh, position affirmations, even sustained only through feelings. No? This kind of identitarian feelings. We feel like that. We feel victims. We are victims. We feel uh, denigrated by elites. We are. Uh, so it's, it's, very, it's very corrosive and very destructive. So yes, I, 
I think we should find ways to distinguish them. For me, when I appealed to this idea that we can say we don't believe you, I was facing this kind of common sense all mm. the time that there's no alternative, old statement that came from the 80s already, there's no future is the new way to say the same. Young people have no future, the earth has no future, new ideas can only be very innovative but not transformative. This kind of be, be you know, adapt uh, yourself to what is going on because there's no other way to survive. No, there's no other way to get along with uh, projects or uh, whatsoever in all kind of collective uh, dimensions of, of life. So, and for me, this kind of ideology is very tricky because you don't see it as an ideology. Uh, this kind of no way, no way, it doesn't matter what we are talking about, is there all the time. And is sometimes seems very empirical because we are talking about energy or we are talking about things that seem to be objective. So in the end, and we can see it now again, nowadays a lot with through young people or, or very young people, teenagers, they have really uh, believed this no way. Yeah, and I know this not. Um, we should elaborate much more. This not believing uh, the end of the world, not with this not believing uh, this no way ideology, um, because it's appealing only to one self's uh, survival. This idea of the future for a few people, the privileges for the ones who get them or who have the right to them, and perhaps the difference would be that. We can only say or affirm ourselves to this, we don't believe you, searching for arguments, searching mm. for, uh, we don't believe you from there and there and there, from this argument and this argument. But who doesn't need arguments is only rejecting uh, the other one's positions. It's what Trumpists do or it's what the earth flats, flatties, I don't know how they are called, no? do is just affirmation. It's like that. No? So how to find new arguments to sustain our not believing this no way ideologies? That would be the question. Yeah, and I think that's a good way of thinking about it. Let's say, mm. well, it's not the end of a, a discussion. It's the opening. It's the opening. Exactly. We start saying, exactly. we, don't, we, we don't believe what's on the table. So let's find out what's yeah, exactly. on the table and it's see if where it's... The, exactly. It's, it's the, where the discussion begins. Yes, because there's a in the solutionism that you describe in your book, it's very interesting that we see it different. We see it in tech in the tech industry, of course. They say, mm -hmm. forget all about politics, we have technology. Exactly. But you also see it among young people who say, believe in science. And we owe a lot to the young green movement. But I'm a little terrified about this belief that if only politicians listen to scientific reason, if only they followed science then we would solve the problems. Mm. Yeah. And, that and, could be another dogmatism. Yes, exactly. That's a kind of dogmatism on the left. There's another very interesting point in your book about cultural servitude. And I think it's it's kind of connected to this believing the dogmatism and this saying, well, we know we have access to all the knowledge in the world and yet we feel stupid together. We, exactly. we have access to all the philosophy and we can see everything that's wrong and everything that's right, mm -hmm. but we don't know how to act. 
together. So the question is, what's wrong with our collective minds? And then you have this expression of cultural servitude. Could you explain that? Yes, for me, one of the, the paradox of our times is this, this gap between what we can get to know and what we can do. And there's like a, one of, it's not always like this, but one of the pre-assumptions that we have about uh, enlightenment attitude, enlightenment uh, project whatsoever, is that through knowledge and education, better action uh, or mm. on the world would be possible. No, That would be one of the ways to describe or define emancipation, not just autonomy, but really this, this uh, dynamic between access to knowledge and, and to education and the progress of society towards better conditions of life for everyone and equal participation in its transformation. Mm. That would be a little bit, no? And that's what doesn't work nowadays. That's the, <laughs> that's the tragedy of our times is, I think it's quite uh, tragical in a very literal sense of the, of the word that we really have a, a gap that doesn't link knowledge and education to emancipation and uh, equal participation uh, in the transformation or elaboration of our conditions of life. So what happens there is, is really one of the sources of impotence uh, nowadays. I think that what is one of the reasons why also academia or school system can be comfortable in its uh, reproduction of inequalities because it has been seen that no one gets nothing better from, <laughs> from there. It's not, for me, it's not true, but we've got to that point that it seems like this. And that's why for me, one of, one of the open, or another open question of my essay is how do we link that again, but mm. being aware of the conditions of our time. So we are not there. We are not uh, in a moment where, for example, 90% of a country uh, had no access to, to reading. Um, no. And then was a very important action to the, the, you know, the, the, the social practices of literacy. And that was made by, by bourgeoisie, but was made also by collective movements of women movements. So getting to the right to read and write was, was really a, a, a revolutionary um, practice. Nowadays is not. So what would be the equivalent of this practice, for example, of getting to uh, know how to read and write together in order to interpret again the world in other ways? And it's not easy to, to find it. It's not easy because we get almost everything served. You know, this servitude is, is there. We have culture as a market with all kinds of targets of consumption. We have for the poor, for the rich, for the uh, extreme right people, for the LHTBQ people, for everyone. So we have a, a market uh, of education, a market for culture, a market of identities that makes it very difficult to really go beyond what we see nowadays that are struggles for being included in that market, <laughs> and nothing more. No, it's a little bit like that. Another identity that can be included in the in the in the market. No, another target for it, <laughs> and there's no 
transformation in, in the subjectivity, just another identity more. It's good to be included and not to exclude uh, ways, uh, identities and ways of living, but it's about this, uh, the, the, the thing, because then action is only this struggling to, to exist in the same world, not changing this world. And that's true. I never thought of it like that before that the incessant focus on inclusion. And it's very easy for me to say because I was always a priori included. Mm -hmm. It has a conservative tendency because it's about being inside and outside and exactly. not restructuring. the house. Exactly. Well, one, one last question for you is mm -hmm. that your book reads or your essay reads almost like a manifesto, a call mm -hmm. to action. And you really feel like you want to go out and emancipate people. <laughs> read read nice. it together. <laughs> What's the history of the book? It came out, what is it, five years ago? How was it received? And what are your own reflections afterwards? I'm not talking about how it was academically or critically received, but oh, yeah, yeah. what practical consequences did it have for you? Well, for me, it was a big surprise because it, it came, as I told you, as the one of the first uh, books of this uh, second life of this mythical collection mm -hmm. of critical thinking. But I thought, well, it's a small book, it's something very tiny, very, and in the immediately it got big resonance, and I was given the prize of the essay prize of the city of Barcelona for that book, and I was like, but it's a very small book, how can it win a prize? Please, it's very strange, no? But it was a, a it was a hint of how was going to be read, no? That my city gives. Uh, the essay uh, prize of that year to that tiny book is that perhaps not only me but a lot of a lot of people could not just appreciate the book and that's okay but really feel engaged by its questions and it's um, as you said the, its manifesto dimension of it so it has had a lot of uh, lives and a lot and a lot of translations a lot of discussions and but especially to me, uh, 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 it has given me the, the context to engage more explicitly, especially in the educational field, because I think it's one of the clues mm. of radical enlightenment. If we understand that radicality of enlightenment has to do in how do we relate through thinking and doing to what we can become. So this dynamic way of understanding who we are we are not just pieces in a in a box. We are uh, transformation. So this very naive idea that through pedagogy, so society can change like this. It's quite naive to say it like this, but I still believe that there's something about learning, uh, not just educating, but learning that is at the core of what we can transform in our ways to relate to others and that means not just educating kids or young people but ourselves Marx said that revolution was self-education so how can we understand this so my my next book after this new radical enlightenment in the 2020 was uh, a book called uh, school of learners uh, escuela de aprendices uh, in german it seeds already and in Italian too, um, this idea of how would it be to if we understood society as a school of learners. Hmm. 
not just educational system, but and this reciprocity of, of learning. We are what we learn from others, good or bad, but we are what we learn from others. And if it is basic social practice, we perceive it in all the dimensions in which we interact, work, learning, loving, uh, living with also in the personal dimension of life, etc. Then how can it change the way we understand how do we want to be educated if we are learners through learners? No? And if we understand us uh, in our political subjectivity in that sense. And that was the, the next book, the, the, the following book after the New Enlightenment. And I've been very engaged in collective uh, educational projects uh, on the margins of the system, within the system, and with different kinds of engagements. And I'm happy about that because uh, there's a big pedagogical debate nowadays, I think all around uh, Europe and all around the world. But it's very tricky because it, all, it is always addressed as a methodological debate and technological debate. And that's the worst trick uh, we can do to really to address nowadays who we want to become with others in our society. Well, thank you very much for your time. That's a wonderful way of, of ending. And I think the experience from our newspaper is that you put something out and you expect it to have an immediate impact. They must change the world now. And it That's never great. has that kind of impact, but it always inspires people who will have an That's impact with, with other people. And I'm sure your book will function as a letter to a lot of different people who also read other letters and they will make an impact. I'm, I'm sure about that with your book. I'm very happy to be part of it and, and I'm very grateful for, for your time and interest. So thank you. Thank you, Marina. <laughs> thank Ciao. you. See you. Det var min samtale med Marina Garthes, og jeg vil sige, at hendes bog for en ny radikal oplysningstid er kommet på det fremragende norske forlag Audiatur. Og hvis man går ind på Audiatur, A-U-D-I-A-T-U-R. Hvis man går ind på deres hjemmeside, så kan man købe bogen. I næste uge, der skal vi tale med Ben Rhodes, som i alle otte år Barack Obama var præsident, var hans National Security Advisor. Han skrev taler for Obama, han rejste med ham rundt i verden og var med til at forme hans udenrigspolitik. Vi taler om USA's plads i verden, vi taler om krigen i Ukraine, og jeg spørger ham, hvordan det kan være, at over de 30 år, hvor Amerika havde et globalt hegemoni, at det samtidig var de 30 år, hvor vi tabte kampen mod klimaforandringerne. Hvis man er blevet så glad for at lytte til informationspodcast, og man gerne vil lytte til mere, så kan man jo også lytte til vores oplæste artikler. Informationen har nemlig relativt sent, men til gengæld relativt kvalificeret fået oplæst vores artikler. Nogle gange er det vores egne skribenter, der læser deres egne artikler op. Andre gange er det nogle superdygtige oplæsere, vi er til at gøre det. Hvis man downloader informationsapp der hvor man ellers downloader sin apps, nemlig i App Store og logger ind der, så kan man faktisk få helt op til en times information i ørerne hver eneste dag. Så hvis man gerne vil information, men er træt af at læse, så kan man lytte til vores artikler i appen. Hvis man gerne vil information og elsker at læse, men også har meget transporttid, så kan man også gå ind og downloade appen og lytte til vores artikler der. Den her udgave af 
Langsomme samtaler var ligesom alle andre udgaver af Langsomme samtaler, produceret af vores gode ven og hjælper, Anne Pilgaard Petersen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg håber, vi høres ved igen i næste uge.